Facebook Live or who will watch the stream later. And uh, it's a reminder for all of you who are, who are on Facebook, you know, we Krispy Kreme donuts today and, you know, tea. The, we have pumpkin spice tea. I'm really liking that pumpkin spice. Uh, but welcome to those who are watching. Remember as well, you can listen. You don't have to watch. You can listen on uh, both the Podbean and um, iTunes platforms as well, okay? So today we're doing part two of God and Culture. Last week we, we tackled climate change, get a lot of feedback uh, from that message on climate change, and today it's going to be even even more probably intense uh, subject. I don't know if there's any kids in the room, but I'll let parents decide what they want to do, uh, because we're going to talk today about the very intense subject of LGBTQ, all right? And so... Fasten your seatbelts. Uh, I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, those of you who are watching or listening, uh, I've discovered there's a lot of people who listen, watch, who are not necessarily identifying themselves as Christians. Uh, there may be people from the LGBTQ community who are watching, so I would ask that you watch the whole thing. Because one thing that, uh, that I don't want is to be misquoted or uh, mislabeled in this message. So try and watch the whole thing straight through. Listen all the way through. Don't turn it out. Don't tune it out and uh, finish the whole thing. Okay, that will be very, very helpful. Do you, do you all know what those letters stand for? We say LGBTQ. Or some of you, you're in a fog. You say, well, I don't even know what that is. And I'm not sure if I... Okay, LGBTQ, we're talking about issues of gender, and sexuality. And this is a big, intense issue uh, in the culture today, especially in, in the Western world, because things have changed. Last 20 or 30 years, there's been a lot of changes, especially with the legalization of same-gender marriage, both in the United States and Canada, and in other places in the world. And there's just all kinds of discussion, and some of it very intense discussion, and some of it even goes beyond discussion when you talk about LGBTQ. Uh, in my view, I'll start by saying this, the church and the community of faith has done some things that, wow, have really misrepresented, in my view, the cause of Christ and what the Bible teaches about this. Uh, so again, there may be people watching, or I mean, some of you, you have family members who would identify somewhere in the LGBTQ community. Um, and they have had all kinds of interactions with the church or with people of faith that haven't always been good ones. So I'm going to try to present this to you in a very sober fashion today. Um, when we talk about LGBTQ, that stands for something. And again, we're talking about gender and sexuality issues here. So some of the language might sound a little bit graphic today. Uh, but I'm trying to, to be as open and as factual as we can, all right? So we talk about the L. The L refers to lesbianism. That's a sexual relationship between two women. We talk about gay. That's two men. We talk about bisexual. That's, that's both. Uh, that, that can be both, both genders. Uh, transgender means a person is more comfortable identifying in a different gender than their biological gender. Okay, and then you have the Q, which is either queer or questioning, and those words mean different things to different people. The word Q tends to refer to 
a person who goes against the cultural norm of either gender or sexual relationships, so they make it quite uh, open and outward that they're, they're looking different, they're talking different, and so they want everyone to kind of know, so it's more of a cultural thing. And questioning is, well, they have all kinds of questions and they're very open to all kinds of things in this list. Uh, there's also a two plus but I don't want to go too, too far in that today. I'll just stick to LGBTQ. So as long as you understand what we're talking about here, this is, we're talking about issues of gender and sexuality. So this is very personal to people. Again, I know people even in this congregation, you have relatives, you have loved ones who identify somewhere in this whole, uh, this whole umbrella. I, I do find it a little uncomfortable to refer to people all in one kind of basket. Uh, because each, each person who identifies with one of these kinds of things is very different from the other. But I'm just using the cultural convention, quote-unquote, LGBTQ. Uh, even, even our own um, uh, assistant to the general superintendent of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, I know him personally, his name is David Hazard, uh, he has a son who identifies as being gay. You say, how's that possible? He's the, he's, the, he's the general superintendent's assistant of the whole movement of 1,300 churches. Yep, but that's how personal it is. Uh, you probably work with people who identify somewhere here. You, again, family members, friends, schoolmates, etc. So how do we intersect the two when, it, when we talk about God and culture even in this area? So I'm going to give you four things to think about today. I think it's four. Uh, number one, we have to understand how a person who identifies somewhere in you know, either lesbian or, or gay or bisexual or transgender or queer slash questioning, we have to understand how a person thinks. Let me just, let me just inform you that people who, who identify in this kind of thing are people just like you and me, okay? There are people just like you and me. I've had friends who identify somewhere in here. I've pastored people who identify somewhere in here. There are people just like you and me and anybody else. There's no real, real difference, They're not from some other planet, okay? There are people just like you and me. Uh, I've had friends who, who have been in this, who are in this this. LGBTQ, they would identify somewhere in that community. We have to understand how a person thinks who is, quote-unquote, living this way. Because we have a lot of bad characterizations and a lot of assumptions that we make, in particular in the church. We make them and we throw them out very casually and very conveniently, but it's much more complicated than that. Um, this, for them... This is not something that they simply choose to do. And we have sometimes, I say we, referring to church people, we say, well, you know, that's a person's choice, and they go out and they choose to, to do that and to live that way. That, that really is, is not true for the broad spectrum of people who identify somewhere in this LGBTQ community. For them, this is not a choice for them, this is who they really are. Uh, I remember having a discussion with um, a lady at the mission where I serve a couple of days a week, and she has a, a, a daughter who is, who is transgender. 
and identifies as a, as a male. And we were having a discussion about it, and I, I forgot how it even came up. She didn't know who I was at first, and we were discussing, and she started to talk about an experience that she and her daughter had at a church. And I think it was a church in the U.S., where, the, where it can be quite volatile over there, depending where you are when you talk about this subject. And she, she got into it, and it was a bad experience in their view that they had in this church, and so on. I said, well, I'm sorry you had a bad experience, and so on. I said, I don't know the church, I don't know the pastor, but I'm sorry you had a bad experience. And she, she couldn't tell where I stood on the subject. And she said, oh, you know, I should come and speak in your church on the subject. Because then she found out I was a pastor. And then we, got, we kept talking more and more, and she realized where I was at with this whole subject. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you really ought to get your head out of the sand. Uh, I, too, was once like you, and, you know, I was of the view that this was, you know, some sort of choice or some sort of thing that a person decides to do. But you really need to get your head out of the sand because the brain chemistry is different. Learn the science and so on. Her brain is different, and this is why. And I was against it at the beginning, but now I'm for it and so on and so on. And we sort of agreed to disagree. Uh, but I have known other people from the LGBTQ community, and, and it is very... I think, insulting to them to say, well, this is your choice, this is what you've chosen to do. No, for them, this is who they are. And having the culture begin to accept LGBTQ on a cultural level for them is very liberating and very empowering because in their mind, now finally I get to be who I am. Again, in their mind. It's always important, folks, to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. You may disagree with them, that's fine. But learn, learn another person's perspective before you paint with a broad stroke. Again, people who are in the LGBTQ community are people just like you and me. In fact, I, I mean, I, I have no problem being, being friends, whatever, I, no problem whatsoever. I remember one time I was in, a, in another church and I preaching a message and these two men came up to me at the end of the message and the message had nothing to do with LGBTQ, but they came up to me and they said, you know, we really, really like the message that you preached. I said, well, thank you. And, and they said, until you read that Bible verse. And I read a verse out of 1 Timothy, I think it was, that mentions uh, homosexuality. I just read the verse. I didn't even comment on the verse in the sermon. And these two men looked at me and said, we loved your sermon right up until that point. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, I just read what it says. Yeah, but you think this and you think this. And we talked and we agreed to disagree and we gave each other you know, a hug and a kiss at the end and it was all well and good. But you must understand, and we all must understand, this is not so simple as, well, they just choose to live this way, and, you know, that's on them. No, for them, this is their identity, and this is who they are, and we need to just understand that before we start jumping to a conclusion, okay? And I know it's quiet, uh, but just keep tracking with me because I don't want to be misquoted in this message, all right? All of that said, we also need to understand what does the Bible really say about the subject? Now, just assuming that the Bible is the Word of God, and I mean, we make that assumption in this church, 
But we're going with that assumption today, okay? So those of you watching, listening, assuming that God wrote a book and he wrote the book, the Bible, what does the Bible really, really say about it? I mean, I've heard pastors say, take all the people who are LGBTQ and round them up and throw them on a desert island. Have you heard that before? I've heard that kind of condemnation. I've heard people say, you know what, that should be, the people who, who live that way, there should be like the death penalty for people who live that way. I have heard that from people who profess to be Christians. Okay, very, very dangerous and very unacceptable talk to do. Very and, you know, some will, will try and quote Bible verses and so on to justify that, that kind of nonsense. All right, what does the Bible really say about this subject? We need to understand what does it teach about gender and sexuality. And we need to, regardless of what side we're on on this whole, this whole controversial su subject, we need to at least acknowledge this is what the Bible says. Whether we choose to agree with it or not is another issue. Whether we choose to believe it's God's book or not is another issue. But goodness, let's at least agree on what it says. Because I have heard people on both sides try to jerk Bible verses out of context and play all these kinds of hermeneutic gymnastics to try and say, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says this. So let's just be clear on what it says. Okay? My job is to tell you what it says. It's not my job to make you believe it. But my job is to stand here and say, look, this is what the Bible really teaches. Take it or leave it, do with it what you choose. But let's just learn to at least understand that. So on the subject of LGBTQ, in particular referring to gender and referring to sexuality, hear me very, very clearly and don't misquote me and listen to the whole thing. From Genesis to Revelation. The 66 books of the Protestant canon of Scripture, okay? From Genesis to Revelation, there is a clear definition of two things. Number one, gender. There is a very clear definition of gender according to the Bible. Male and female are distinct. They are different from one another, and they, those genders are unchanging. That is very crystal clear from Genesis to Revelation. There really is no way to try and, you know, play some kind of interpretation game to say that there's something different. It's very clear from Genesis to Revelation. We have male, we have female. They are distinct. They are different from one another, and they are unchanging. That means nowhere do we see in the scripture that a, a gender change is something that happens. We do not see it. This is very, very clear that this is what the Bible teaches about gender. Again, male and female, distinct, different from one another, and unchanging. On the subject of sexuality, from Genesis to Revelation, the 66 books of the Protestant canon, all right, there is a very, very clear thread wound through pretty well all of these books, with the exception of a few, maybe, that healthy and holy sexual activity, I will repeat that, healthy and holy sexual activity is only in a very small window, only in the context of three things, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. 
I'll repeat this statement. Healthy and holy sexual activity is only, again, in a very small context, of monogamous, that means only, only one partner, okay? Monogamous, heterosexual marriage. You take marriage out of the picture, it's, it's unholy. You take heterosexual out of the picture, it's unholy. You take monogamous out of the picture, it's unholy. It's a very narrow context, according to the Bible at least. Agree with it or disagree with it if you choose. You're certainly free to do either, but at least let's agree on what the thing teaches. At least let's say, all right, maybe it's a 2,000-year-old book that we just put aside, and we say this is archaic, we're beyond this, we live in the 21st century, etc., etc. Okay, we can choose that if we want to, or we can choose to say, no, this is God's book and it's still relevant for today. Well, at least, whatever position you take, at least agree on what the thing teaches. Because nothing is more destructive then say, well, let's, let's change what it, what it says. Let's adjust what it says. Let's poke around and turn it upside down, and then, and then we can make it say something. No, at least even from a literary standpoint, even if you don't believe it's God's book, at least agree these are, this is what the authors were intending to teach, whoever they are and wherever they come from. Okay, so understand what the Bible says about the subject. Furthermore, and again, don't turn me off, don't misquote me, hear the whole thing. Furthermore, the Bible spends very little time, very little. I would say about half a percent of the material in the 66 books of the Bible addresses LGBTQ. Probably half a percent. It is barely addressed. And I know there is a furor about the subject today in some faith contexts and in some churches, but if we're going by the data of the Bible and we look at the Bible, we read the Bible from cover to cover, there is a very small percentage that even addresses the subject of LGBTQ. Jesus never specifically mentioned it. Not specifically. He did not. It is not specifically mentioned by Moses in the Ten Commandments. Not specifically. It is not specifically addressed. One would think if this was a really, really big issue back then, that it would be addressed at least by Jesus in some shape or form, or at least by Moses in the Big Ten. But it was not. And again, the amount of information compared to the rest of the Bible is very, very small, quite puny, in fact, compared to the rest of Scripture. When it is mentioned, okay, it's mentioned by Moses, maybe not in the Ten Commandments, but in the other books of the law that he wrote. It's mentioned by Paul. It's mentioned by Jude, uh, the half-brother of Jesus. When it is mentioned, it is clear, whether we agree with it or not, whether we disagree with it or not, whatever, it is clear that LGBTQ, and again, I'm using the convention of today. I don't like really putting all of these people in one bucket, but just for convention, clearly LGBTQ is categorized as sin. When it is mentioned, and it is mentioned very little. Do you know what the Bible spends a whole lot more time on when it comes especially to sexuality? A whole lot more time. And you can see a whole lot more information and story after story after story after story. It has to do with sexual sin of a heterosexual nature. 
a whole lot more. I mean, you could name stories right off the top of your head about heterosexual problems in the scripture. You ever heard of a guy named David? Ooh, big problem there. That's called sin. Okay, many, many times we see this thing pop up over and over and over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation, in particular, sexual sin of a heterosexual nature. Do you know why I say this? Because I have heard people get up and yell and scream at the LGBTQ community, and then a year later, they're caught having an affair. It's just as bad, my friends. If we're going to get up and say da 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 is unholy and ungodly and is sin, we better be real, real careful. We better know what the Bible says. Because the Bible, again, spends a whole lot more time, illustration after illustration, sad story after sad story, destructive relationship after destructive relationship that deals with sin of a heterosexual nature. I'm a pastor in the 21st century, and I have dealt so much more with people's problems in their personal relationships that are of a heterosexual nature. Yes, I have dealt with some LGBTQ, but comparatively small. And the Bible has a small amount of data on it. And even today, in spite of the cultural acceptance of all of this and how it's constantly in the media and how you, yes, as parents, you're struggling. What do I do with this? How do I teach my kids? You know, they're learning this stuff in school and they're changing curriculums and all this kind of thing. What do I do with this? How do I navigate with this? Folks, it, it, the, sa the same general thing is true as it was 2,000 years ago. The reason why the data is so small on it in the Bible is because the population percentage is relatively small. You don't really see it that often. So I looked at stats from 2016, 2017 in the United States. We're talking about 5% or less of the population of the United States, probably it's the same in Canada, that would identify somewhere in this whole thing of LGBTQ. It's a relatively small percentage. And that's why there's relatively little information. We're talking about a book written to a Hebrew culture that's thousands of years old. This was not common in their culture. Is it more commonly accepted today? Yes, but the amount of people, it's still, relatively speaking, relatively speaking small. Does that mean that the people are less important? Obviously not. I'm just talking about statistics and raw data. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a biological reason for this because you cannot sustain biologically, you cannot, if the 100% of the population of the planet was LGBTQ. You cannot biologically sustain that because two men or two women cannot reproduce. I'm sorry to say it. I'm just talking about biology and fact and data. Okay, You cannot biologically, naturally reproduce. Now, maybe you say, well, yes, but we can do that now, Pastor. We have the surrogate parent over here. And we have all this, all this cool stuff that we can do in terms of technology. And you can have two, two of the same gender getting married and having children and so on and so on. Yeah, and ka-chink, ka-chink to get that done. That's a lot, a lot of money to do that. So the biology doesn't really help the subject. And the amount of data in the Bible, relatively small. The amount of data today. In terms of raw statistics, still relatively small. When it is mentioned in the Bible, yes, it's categorized as sin, but so is a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more that's categorized as sin in the Bible. And wow, I mean, if, if I had 
if I had a, a book to write about the sin that I've seen the most in church work in the last 19, 20 years, it would be sin of a heterosexual nature. It would be affair after affair. It would be people who are engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. It would be prostitution. It would be all kinds of things of that nature. But very little of it would be LGBTQ. Are you still with me? Okay, it's, it's, it's quiet. So given the fact that the Bible, when it does speak of this, it does speak of it as sin, uh, is this, and I'll use a popular word today, does this mean that the Bible is discriminatory? Does the Bible discriminate against LGBTQ? Because if it does, wow, we could be in a lot of trouble in a few years. We may be forbidden to read some of the passages in the scripture. I'm going to read one at the end of this message. We may be forbidden if this is a hate book. Is this a hate book that discriminates against a broad scope of people in the culture? Does it teach hate? Does it teach Christians to hate? Does it teach pastors to hate? Is it discriminatory? Well, before we, before we answer the question, we need to understand there are things that you're going to read in the Bible about your life and about my life that you and I will not like. Do you know what, you know what the Bible addresses that word as when we're doing something where we're against the law of God and the moral standard and the moral ethic of God? Do you know what that's called? That's called sin in the Bible. It's still there. It's still there in the Bible. The Bible hasn't changed. It's still there. And the teaching of the Bible is that when you violate God's standard and his moral and his ethic, you have sinned against him. Therefore, the thief, the adulterer, the deceiver, the idolater, the gossiper, the slanderer, the murderer, they all should feel discriminated against when they read the Bible. Because the Bible is saying to the thief, for example, you are sinning against God. Is that offensive? To a thief it is. Is that offensive? To an adulterer it is. Is that offensive? To a gossiper it is. Is it discriminatory? Well, technically, yes. Because it's calling somebody out on their behavior and on their life. My friends, we can talk about God. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace. But you have to understand the context of love and the context of grace. Our problem is that we by nature are set up against God. We are in, we are born in it, we live in it, it's what we know, it's what we understand, and it's called sin. Whatever sin it may be, we can pick on one little thing, but that's not what God does. For God, it's all one big thing. In terms of sexual sin, what you will find, and this, this is just a broad statement that's made by the Apostle Paul, he says, he who sins sexually sins against his or her own body. So the way that it plays out in a person's life may be different than a sin like gossip, for example, but to God, it's sin. So the gossiper should be just as offended, the thief, the deceiver, the idolater, the, the slanderer, the, the, the murderer, they should be just as offended when they pick up this book and say, wow, God is discriminating against me. Yes, he is. By saying that the way that you're doing stuff is sin, 
that's technically discriminatory. Does that mean that it's a bad book? No, but let's agree with what it teaches. In the Bible, the last, last little series of points here, in the Bible, okay, and I'm going by what it says, I'm not going by what culture says. In the Bible, we are not to identify with our affinities or our proclivities or our attractions or our instincts. The Bible would call us against identifying with these things. So if we feel a particular pull toward a particular thing or behavior, whatever it may be, or thought, whatever it may be, doesn't matter. If we feel a pull toward it, we are called by the Scripture to not always trust it. Because we, by instinct, have affinities and attractions and proclivities and tendencies and predispositions and so on that by nature, by instinct, are against God. You say, what? Yes. When Lady Gaga said, you're born this way, in a sense, you're born that way. You are born with your back up against your Creator. And however that may manifest itself is, is many different things. But sin is the universal condition of humanity. Why do we pick on one group? Why do we pick on one behavior? Why do we pick on one person? I'm not sure, but we should look in the mirror and say, this is what the book says. The book says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Folks, if I went with my instinct and my proclivity and my affinity and my tendency and my predisposition, I would not be standing here. I, I wouldn't have gotten out of bed this morning, okay? And maybe some of you wouldn't either. Bed's a lot warmer than, you know, the fall weather in Quebec. But where did we get the idea that if it feels right, it's who we are? If it makes us feel happy, it's who we are. Where did we get that idea? We didn't get it from this book. Because this book will tell us, no, you shouldn't trust what you feel all the time. You shouldn't trust your inclination all the time. And who you are is not necessarily based on what you feel and what your tendency is and what your pull is. The reason why I say this is because with reference in particular now to LGBTQ, this is the idea, this is the apologetic, this is the, the, the rhetoric that is used. They, people will say, this is the way that God created me. This is who I am. This is what I feel. This will make me happy and so on. This will give me a sense of fulfillment. And we have a whole kind of apologetic that we develop around this today in culture. We use Bible verses. Some, some Christians, some ministers use Bible verses to try and justify this whole thing. But when, where were we told that if it feels good, do it? If it feels good, it will set you free. If it feels good, it will make you feel like a whole person. No, what we're told in the scripture is by nature, you and I have a problem. By nature, we have a universal experience, and that is the experience of sin. Folks, I won't tell you what some of my tendencies and proclivities and affinities are. You can talk to my wife, and she will tell you what they are, okay? Some of them aren't too nice, but when this is the whole amazing thing about Christianity. What it teaches, and what the Bible teaches, is that no one is exempt from this problem. 
It doesn't matter what your gender thing is, your sexuality thing is, etc., etc. We can try and amplify that until, until you know, like the end of time. That is, that is the bigger problem is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And it doesn't matter. Sin has no, there's no exceptions to it. It has infected us all. So by nature, we are against God. We are born with our back up against God. Our instinct is to rebel against God, according to the Bible. And so when we pick it up and we give it the benefit of the doubt and we say this is God's book, you know what it's going to do? It's going to offend us. It's going to offend us a lot. And that, my friends, is God doing his job. You cannot understand the grace of God and the love of God until you are offended by Him. When you are offended by Him and when you recognize that your behavior is being called out by your Creator, then you learn to appreciate the grace that He gives. So you can't, you can't have one without the other. You know, sometimes we, we, even in churches, we get up and we talk about God and it's so lovey-dovey. Listen, God, God loves humanity. He loves humanity in His own blood. But He loves humanity because He sees that humanity has fallen away from Him. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is, this is not God's problem, it is ours. We are born out of fellowship with God. Nobody is born in a right relationship with God. I don't care what family you come from. I don't care if your daddy's a preacher. But my daughter, my daughter is a preacher's kid. She ain't a Christian because of me, I can tell you. Okay, doesn't matter what your pedigree is. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what your religious background is. You are born with your back up against God. Whether you're LGBTQ or you're not, you're born with your back up against God. Now, the salvation story and we'll close with this. The hope for humanity that we have is not that our identity is fixed in our affinities or our proclivities or our tendencies or our predispositions. Uh-uh. That's not where we are to identify. The salvation story is that a person's identity, who they are, can be changed. Do you know what I found in life? I found that when I followed my proclivities and my affinities and all that, that would make me happy, but it would make me happy for a very temporary amount of time. Maybe you have the same experience. And then you had to fill that void with another and another and another. And there was a temporary thrill. There was a temporary pleasure. There was a temporary happiness, but it just faded away. And then you had to reach for something else to fill the hole inside. That whole, my friends, is there because of sin. That is because our identity is outside of the grace of God. And that identity needs to change. And what the Bible teaches is that a change of identity is actually possible. God can transform a person and make them into a, a 
totally different kind of person, like the metamorphosis that takes place from a caterpillar to a butterfly. There can be a transformation where a person's tendencies and affinities and proclivities and attractions and instincts are not necessarily trusted, and what they do is they say, I trust in my creator. As we sang it today, the Waymaker, and he is able to set us free from those things that block us from a relationship with God. Boy, is it quiet. He's ever able to change us from sinner to saint. My friends, I do not identify as a sinner anymore. At best, I will identify as a forgiven sinner. But the way the Bible addresses the follower of Jesus is as a saint. Maybe you're not perfect this side of eternity, but positionally speaking, he looks down at the believer and says, you are cleansed, you are clean from your sin. And he gives the believer the power to live a life free from that thing that blocks them from a relationship with God. And this is possible because primarily and focused centrally on the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Because of that event in history, a person's life can be transformed. Whatever your life may be, it can be transformed. From 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, the context here, uh, Paul is actually writing to, to a church that's fighting against itself. And here he's picking up an argument where you've got Christians suing one another, taking each other to court. Uh, I've seen that happen before. I've actually been in situations where there was legal action, Christian against another Christian. I've even had legal action taken upon me uh, by another Christian, or at least a threat of legal action. And here Paul is addressing it, and he's saying, you know, you guys are doing this. You're fighting with one another. You're taking each other to court in front of the unbelieving world. What an embarrassment. You can't even get along with one another. You're fighting with one another. You have lawsuits with one another. Wow, is that ever embarrassing is basically what he's saying to this church in Corinth. It says the very fact that you have lawsuits against one another means you're defeated already. Wow, why not rather be wronged? Ugh, didn't Jesus say turn the other cheek? Why not rather be cheated? Paul says he's really calling them out. And he says, you know, you should be those who turn the other cheek. You should be those who say I'd rather be wronged. I'd rather have wronged doing done to me and leave it alone. But he says, no, he says, instead, you yourselves cheat and you yourselves do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And here's where he says it. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Like, don't you know that that kind of behavior that you're doing is like, you shouldn't be living that way anymore. He says, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. And here he gets into it. And this is one of the, one of the hot button texts, one of the few hot button texts in the Bible that loosely addresses LGBTQ. It's only one part of it. But here's what he says. Neither the sexually immoral, broad spectrum there. He's not necessarily thinking about LGBTQ. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, Nothing to do with sexuality there, nor adulterers, oh, back into sexuality, nor male prostitutes, oh boy, nor homosexuals, oh boy. The Greek there is men plus bed, 
All right, some translations say men who have sexual relations with men, probably a better translation. So he, he's calling it out there. He says, nor thieves, nothing to do with sex there, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Is that offensive? Yup. If you're in any one of those things, you just read that verse, you say, man, this is offensive. I remember a, a, a friend of mine, he read this text in the Bible. He took the Bible, he threw it across the other, the, the, to, to the wall in the room. He was so angry by what he read. Okay, but I didn't write it. <laughs> you can be angry if you want, but this is what the book says, right? Offended, offended, offended. It's discriminating against me. Yes, but a transformation is possible where you can be set free from all those things that block you from a relationship with God. And that is what some of you were. Boy, I remember when my life was lost in sin. I remember when I was saying, thinking, and doing things that I could not stop. Things that were ultimately, ultimately, slowly destroying my own life from the inside out. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I know who I am, I am yours, I am yours. A transformation is possible where you say, you know what? Proclivities and affinities and instincts otherwise, I now live a new life in Christ. It's not about the, 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 the subject LGBTQ. It's about being set free from your sin. It's so quiet. Usually in the church you get, yes and amen, I've been set free from my sin. Well, sorry, I'll raise my hands and say amen because I like being set free from sin. Do you? I sure do. Because I know sin will give you what you want, but it will ask you for more and more and more, and it'll take more and more and more of your life, ultimately destroying you slowly but surely from the inside out. You can still say that today. You can still say, look, this is what the book teaches. We can say, forget the book, fine. You know what I find? I find the book gives me life. I find the book sets me free. Wow. I find the book enables me to live differently than I lived before. And I may not be happy all the time, but I have a joy and a peace that passes understanding because I do not identify in my affinities. I do not identify in my tendencies and my predispositions. I identify with Jesus and that cross. Oh, that is so reassuring and so helpful. And when my life is over, I know that I'll be on the other side with him. The, the ultimate consolation and the ultimate prize. Yes, it is offensive. Yes, the morals and the ethics of God are offensive. Oh, but yes, they're so liberating when you know the grace and the love of Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like the band to come back. I'm going to pray, and they're going to lead us in that song. I know who I am. Gone a little longer than we usually do today, but heavy subject. Uh, the stream can be stopped now, and I pray that I'm not too, too misquoted in all of this. But uh, let me pray for you today. God, we thank you and we praise you for what you have left us in your word. God.